Lord, we come to you humbled, Lord, in awe that you would come and draw us to yourself through your Son, making a way for us to be saved, giving us your nature, making us new. May you grant us the wisdom to see, to hear, and then to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So would you rather, it's a game we'd always play in youth ministry, typically at a lunch when you're on the spot and pizza's getting cold and you got to get everyone's attention. Would you rather be rich, full, warm, happy, and popular, or poor, hungry, sad, and hated? It's pretty no-brainer, right? We already give you the answers to the test, which is usually how I like, you know, when I got to college, the professors would give you the syllabus and they'd actually teach it. Unlike in high school, I was like, what are we, what are we learning? I don't know. And they're like, here, read this book. We're going to test you on it. And then there you go. All of a sudden I started getting straight A's. It was like, I knew what to do. I'd study it. I also realized I was studying God's word and I was called to be a pastor. So that the Holy Spirit had some help. I had a little tutor there. But when I, when you read this, especially in a, in a church setting where there's a pastor and it's like, hey, do you want to be rich, warm, happy, and popular? And you're like, I think this is a trick question. But my flesh likes those things, right? Like, who woke up and was like, what are you doing? We love to freeze. Get in your ice bath. I want to make fun of you while you eat your breakfast and then put oatmeal on your face and laugh at you as we get in the car and make sure everyone makes fun of you. The whole church are like, no, that's not what you, you do. But Jesus says, hey, welcome to being my disciple. Here's the 101 class. Here's the introduction. Here's, here's your manual, or here's your manifesto of what it means to be a Christian, uh, to be poor, hungry, and hated, and uncomfortable. The reality is when we dive into this, in Luke chapter 6, it's a very Gentile, somewhat our language. He summarizes the Sermon on the Mount. This is the spark note of, of a bigger sermon that Jesus taught and, and Matthew records all of, if not every detail uh, in, in, in length. But here in Luke, he's writing to a young believer. He's writing to someone who, who predominantly isn't Jewish, and he's writing to an audience similar to us, where we kind of know, but we, we're really just concerned about Jesus. And so he says, hey, we're going to focus on Jesus. And he runs again. If you were with us last week, you saw in the week before Jesus keeps bumping up against the, the religious. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two religious groups in the day, and they were not happy with Jesus because he kept doing things that you're not supposed to do according to their religion, especially on Sabbath. So the first thing he does is he heals someone. Last week he gave someone legs, and then today we see that he, he allows his disciples to eat right before we get to where he read this morning, and then he heals a guy's hand on the Sabbath. You're doing things you shouldn't do. This isn't going to be good for you. And Jesus just says, hey, this is what's going to happen. It's happening to me. It's going to happen to you. So, so not only is this a matter for today, but more importantly, this is a matter of our soul's condition for eternity that Jesus is teaching us here. And I want to show us this morning this truth that, that Jesus promises for those who call on his name— this is one of those interesting messages where there's a crowd and there's disciples, but it's, he's really speaking to the believers. And he's letting the unbelievers in on, on hearing and seeing, hey, this is the good news of the gospel, and this is what it's going to produce in those who truly believe. And you may not 
fully believe, you may want to believe, but you may not be able to fully believe because of what he says. It's going to be hard for you. And, he, and that's where Jesus says, woe to you, because you're going to get your reward on earth, not in heaven. But blessed are those who allow Jesus to give them a new life and allow his spirit to be in them and control them. And then we're going to see later on that what's in us is controlling us and will eventually come out of us. And so Jesus is questioning his disciples and, okay, you signed up to follow me. And then are you really committed to allowing me to transform you and change you? Because it's going to go, it's going to be hard. And it's hard for me. And so Luke again brings us to the feet of Jesus to see who he is and how he's come to bless us, to bless others. And this is, this is so important because so often we read these and we go, okay, pastor gave me my to-do list. I got to go try and do better, try harder and not sin as much. But he said it all, but I don't think that's possible. So I'm just going to try, try harder this week to do better. But we see right out of the gate, Jesus in verses 1 through 11 establishes authority. And as they question him on his disciples eating, they didn't like go to Subway or go to In-N-Out and get a meal. He, they just were walking through a field, grabbed some grain, ground it up in their hands and ate it, a little snack. They're just getting a little protein, a little hungry, you know, a little, little something-something to, to sustain them. And it was on the Sabbath, the day that God gave for rest, and they questioned it because they were questioning his authority, saying, well, how can you allow this? And he, he's like, you want to go right now? Let's, let's talk. Let's talk in your world. Okay, David, the, the great king, the prophet David, the guy you worship, you're not going to go against him. Well, he allowed his, his guys to have a little snack in the, in the, on the Sabbath, and there was a loaf of bread that was only for the priests, and they allowed to eat it. So you're going to go against David? Because, and then Jesus drops the mic and he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. This is my day. I gave to you. I can do what I want on my day. And then the next time he's in church, the commentators thought maybe there's a plant there, which I was like, I don't know, that might be reading a little too much. I mean, the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to, to catch Jesus doing something they could deem sin to, to do something to him. We find out later they wanted to kill him. But there's a guy in church who has a withered hand, and so Jesus knows their hearts and minds, as we read in the chapter. He pulls the guy up front and says, hey, stretch, stretch out your hand. And right before he said that, though, he, he calls them on their thoughts and actions, which supports his authority. Jesus is establishing his authority. He knows their evil thoughts and desires. They wanted him to heal this guy on the Sabbath because in their rules— there weren't just the Ten Commandments. There was 370-odd rules to keep the Ten. And one of those was doing no work on the Sabbath because God gave it to him to rest. But Jesus asked him that question. In verse 9, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? He brings up the basic question. Because they know in a blue-collar town like ours, if your cow fell into a ditch was drowning on the Sabbath, it was lawful for you to rescue the cow. So they were like PETA of our day, right? They cared more about the animals than they did people. And, and so he's like, what are we going to do here? The guy's, guy's got a busted hand. That was in a blue collar construction. He's a foreman. A lot of commentators think he potentially in that area, there's a lot of rock work. So maybe his hand got crushed. He couldn't work, which means he couldn't provide for his family. So he's like, is it lawful to do harm or what are we going to do? He says, stretch out your hand, buddy. And he stretches out his hand and it's healed. And everyone loses their mind, verse 11. There's fury, anger, discord. And they wanted to figure out what to do with Jesus. 
So what does Jesus do? He goes and prays. What else is Jesus going to do? So he leaves, prays all night long. So he has his authority over the Sabbath. He can do what he wants on the day. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are bummed and they're trying to, they're angry and bitter towards him. And he goes and prays. Now Luke is writing this in order for this young believer, Theophilus, to understand the heart of God, the power of God, and the purpose of God isn't about us doing or getting things right religiously or doing and getting things possessionally for, for us to, to, to build our kingdom. But Jesus is building his kingdom and he's doing a different work. And so he goes and prays all night long because it's so important about what's going to take place after that night of prayer, which if you've ever, you know, think about it, have you ever seen a proposal? I mean, nowadays they do the whole like, hey, second cousin, I'm going to propose like two years from now. So book this day. We're going to do this huge thing. It's going to be all, you know, videographed and photographed and everything. Like, I remember when I proposed to my wife, it was literally like, hey, could we get, does someone have a phone or like a nice camera? And my buddy's texting me because he was out ready to take a photo of us. And he's like, dude, there's this guy who has a really nice DSLR. I just met him. If you go propose now, he'll email me the pictures. And I'm like thinking now how technology's advanced, right? I'm like, this stranger, my buddy's like, dude, just hang out here. I know it's getting cold, it's dark, but he's supposed to propose. Like, look at a picture of him. And imagine you're on your knee and then the guy's proposing and he falls asleep. Like, how hilarious would that be? But Jesus was staying up all night praying. I remember I've tried to pray all night before and like I get an hour or two into it and I'm out. And I wake up like three in the morning delirious. Like, oh, I fail. I can't. I'm, I'm really earnest about this thing. I promise, Lord. But you fall asleep. We're weak. And Jesus stayed up all night praying. It was that important. And when you do important things, you don't fall asleep. Like there's certain times in the day where I might sit down and it's important and we're praying with kids or and I just pass, I'm just tired. I'm like, ah, this is important. I should not be falling asleep right now. But when there's important things in your life, you don't fall asleep. Jesus stayed up all night praying because he was choosing out of the 700, out of the 70 that were there, 12 to be apostles. And I don't want that to be lost on us because um, these were really special guys. They had a lot going on. They didn't, they didn't have any money. They're poor. They're from blue collar. They had no connections and one of them was going to be a traitor, verse 16. It says, yeah, and then there's Judas after the whole long list, and he's the traitor. It's like, man, did Jesus mess up? Is Jesus not in control? He stayed up all night praying. What more could have Jesus done to, to choose the right guys, to do his work? But we have to remember the Sabbath was given to us for rest on Saturday after God's creation. And now we have the Lord's Day, Sunday, to remind us that Jesus accomplished the work as he walked out of the tomb on Sunday before we do our work on Monday. And so we have this day to reflect and remind ourselves that the gospel is not what we do, it's what God's done for us. It's his spirit that's in us, that controls us, that comes out of us. And so when he chooses these 12, he's setting up this, this new people for himself. And he's dependent on God's authority. As he says in John 17, I've revealed you, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me 
and they've obeyed your word. John 17, 6. Jesus is saying, God the Father, I've been in prayer with you. I'm dependent on your authority. I have all authority, but I don't do anything or say anything unless it comes from you. And he has that communication because he's in prayer. And he models that dependency for the disciples. So often they see him praying and going away and praying and coming and doing these amazing things and then going and praying and they're like, hey, you got to teach us how to pray because obviously it's not in your preaching. Obviously there's some power in prayer. We got to be about prayer. If we're going to be about Jesus, we got to be about prayer. And so as we see this discipleship wheel we've put on uh, the screen and put in your notes for you, it's interesting to think about when you, when you look at how people pray, you know, you, you're, you're in unbelief, and then you pray, and you're like, Lord, save me. I've heard of guys like in the cartel in Mexico, and they're like, God, if you get me out of this jam, I'll serve you. And I'm like, I don't know if that's like a saving prayer or a test prayer, but hey, God saved you, and he, he, he got you out of the jam, and now you're committed to the Lord. I don't think that's something I'm going to ascribe to everybody. Just live your, wife, live your life as wild and free, and then at the last second, throw a Hail Mary out there. I don't think that's what... God intended, but there's a prayer, right? And it's a saving prayer. Like, hey, God, save me, however that looks. And then an infant, you're ignorant, and you're like, God, I just need you to give me a parking space into the parking lot for food flesh because I gotta run, I'm running late. And you're like, these very ignorant prayers, you're like, really, is God of the universe concerned about your parking space and gonna, like, split the Red Sea for you? He can, he has the power, but uh, as an infant, you know, you're kind of ignorant about the things, and it's very, you move into that child phase, and you're praying selfish prayers, and it really continues of like, okay, Lord, my finances, like I know I should have budgeted better, but I really need you to pay this credit card payment today. Like, nope, nothing in the mailbox. God, where are you? You know, the child prayers are you're still kind of selfish. You're like, okay, you got to heal my cat. Like my cat's dying and then my family's really concerned about the cat. And you have these kind of these simple, basic, and then it moves on to like, oh, I need, I actually need to change. As a child, you start to realize in a way I'm not all that, I should be, and I need to be, and actually, it's, I'm bad, and, and if you have kids, it's amazing how when you set a standard, and they realize they can't meet the standard, the default is, I shouldn't even be in this family. I shouldn't even be loved. I shouldn't, e- I can't measure up, and, and we've all felt that before, and that's why Jesus modeled this prayer of, hey, it's, it's not what you can do. It's not about you getting things. It's about what I'm going to do for you, disciples. And then you're going to bring that message to the whole world. And as young adults, you start thinking about other people, which doesn't really happen until the resurrection for the disciples. They're still thinking about themselves. They're like, so Jesus, before, you, before whatever happens, who's, who's going to be first? Like, who's better of all the 12? Like, there's still children in their spirituality. They're like, wait, we just need to know before anything happens who you really love more. And then as a parent, you're, you're reproducing. And so the, the point of where we're going to go into the Beatitudes, these teachings of those who are blessed and those who are woes, and then he gets into how you love people, is we can be anywhere on this wheel, especially parents and young adults, and then something happens, and something hits, and and strikes a chord, and then we're right back into that infant or child phase, and we're immature in our prayers or our emotions, we're angry, we're bitter, we're, we're selfish, we're proud. And so as we think about this, the unique thing is Jesus came to give us his spirit to control us and then flow out of us as we see. And that's why he's saying in verse 20, we need to be in prayer so when things happen, Jesus can respond the way that God would have him respond because he's 100% God and 100% man. So as this new nation is born through these disciples, we see 
their names written in verse 12 through 16. Verse, verse 14 is where he starts with Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew. In verse 15, Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who is called the Zealot. And then verse 16, there's two Judases. And Judas, the son of James, don't mix them up because the other one's bad. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So I've always been like, man, that poor Judas. Like, after, you know, the early church is like, hey, Judas, didn't you, did you, you're the guy that betrayed you. No, that's the other Judas. Like, come on. And I think Jesus did that on purpose to keep him humble. Like, hey, it's, we can all, we're all one mistake away from betraying Jesus and blowing it, right? And here, we see these guys were country boys. They were not connected. They were mostly fishermen, hated tax collector. Not one of them was famous or rich. And so I'm sure they were like, blessed are you who are poor. Yep, sweet, that's all of us. Matthew, yeah, that, yeah you're just getting started. You don't, have, you, know, you don't have a 401k set up yet. Okay, we're all poor. And then Jesus says in verse 20, yours is the kingdom of God. Like, oh, I like the sound of that. That has a good ring to it, the kingdom of God. Got a good inheritance. Man, this is a good benefit package. I didn't know that was going to be part of being a disciple. Well, how wonderful. And then verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Jesus chose people that needed to be dependent. This unusual dependence on him made it possible to display his unique power and purpose and grace in their life. As he saved them, he put his spirit in them that controlled them and that when they acted and spoke, it flowed out of them and the world took notice. Because the world had the, had the idea of what blessing meant and it was actually upside down. And so Jesus takes it and flips it right side up and everyone's like, wait, this is upside down because they didn't understand what reality really was and how they were supposed to live. They were all selfish. And so as we see, blessed are you when, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. He's explaining, I just invited you in to be my disciples and now guess what? They're gonna hate you and, and spurn your name because of me. Welcome to the club. Here's your manual. And then he says this in verse 23, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is saying, as a, as a, as a rabbi, as a teacher who has disciples, I'm teaching this message. Day one, I walked into my synagogue and I opened the scriptures and I read it and I said, this is fulfilled and you're hearing the deaf are going to hear, the blind are going to see, the lame are going to get legs, like we talked about last week. And then the guy's hand is healed. He's doing everything he said he would do. That's why the scribes and Pharisees were so mad, because he's claiming to be God, and he's backing it up every time with miracles. The miracles weren't just a sideshow act. He was proclaiming the gospel, and the miracles supported it. Right before he started teaching this, it says in verse 18, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. So this great crowd gathers of his disciples and a great multitude of people, and all who came to hear him were healed, and demons were cast out, and then he began to teach. He's saying, I'm going to heal, and then I'm going to bring, I'm going to set the captives free, give sight to the blind, legs to the lame, 
I'm doing it. And everyone can't argue with it because there's people who are being healed and Jesus said he was going to do it and he's doing it. And now he's saying, look, everyone are going to revile you because of my name. Guess what the disciples are probably starting to think? Man, we left everything to follow this guy? How's this going to go for us? This is tough. They had to depend on him. They had to trust him. And it was this reality that was starting to sink in. And I don't know if you've ever been there where the Holy Spirit has moved in your life and moved you to a place where people are starting to speak bad about you and you're depressed and you're angry and, and you're frustrated. How, is this, how, is, how are they coming against me? What did I do? And Jesus is like, that's the best day of your life. What do you do? Because of Jesus, what, why aren't you excited? And I don't know if you've ever had that joy as, as I've had a couple times in my life where it's like, yes, people are being persecuting me because of Jesus' name. This is awesome. This is such a good day. I love it. And I shouldn't. And I'm alone and I'm hungry and I'm cold and I'm poor and I love it. It's so good. And then you read Paul and he's like, I'm in prison and it's the best place. It's awesome. These people think I'm in prison because of them. I'm in prison because of Jesus. And I get to preach to all these captive listeners, pun intended. Right? Like, Paul is so pumped. He's like, this is great. And how come we don't rejoice? Because when Jesus comes, he says, look, if there's seven eighths of you, and you're like, yeah, you can have that extra eighth. It's, yeah, perfect, Jesus. Come on in. I, I believe. That's not saving faith. Unless Jesus gets all eighths of you, if he gets 100% of you, that's the only way he's going to save you because he has to fill you entirely with his spirit. If you say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely filled with me, and there's a, you know, on Sunday I'll give you an hour. It'll be, maybe I'll listen for 10 minutes of the hour because he might go, I don't know. Jesus is like, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not buying it because I'm your savior 100%, and I'm about to transform you into my son or daughter, and then I'm going to set you with this purpose to go love the world. And it's going to be so amazing, but so difficult at the same time. And so as he's preaching to his disciples and the multitudes are listening in, kind of like here, a lot of you are believers, some aren't. Some are going, hey, I'm kind of curious about Jesus. I kind of want to know what it would be like to follow him. Well, you're going to get a very clear picture of what it's like to follow him and the, the unique difference that when believers are persecuted, we rejoice and pray for those who are hurting us. In verse 24, through 26, he changes tone a little bit and says, hey, woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. In verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to their false prophets. So, so the woe is, hey, wake up. Whoa, if you just think life's all about the, the, the present, the material, if you get billions of people liking your Facebook page, if you're the bestseller, if your blog takes off, if your work goes crazy, and all of a sudden it's all good, it's all comfortable, and there's no food, there's no need, this life is so short. And if we're living for ourselves and trying to protect our own kingdom, the result, the bigger picture, way bigger than politics and in, in this, this continent and the world is so dark and, and, and destructive and distracting from what Jesus is trying to get our eyes to fixate on, it, it, it's not our budget, it's our heart. It's not getting things or doing better things, it's our heart being changed and being content with, with little or being content with a lot, whatever Jesus allows. And so 
as he is explaining to a multitude, but specifically the disciples, it's like, hey guys, this isn't about your budget or your house. This is about God's kingdom and, and getting in your heart. Are you allowing Jesus to have control of your life? And the Lord explained the sermon, it's truly blessing does not come from getting or from doing, but from being. And the only way we can be a son or daughter of God is if we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior and he captures our heart. And then we're in community with believers growing from an infant to a child, from an adolescent to an adult. And that takes time. And this, as Jesus explains in this sermon, and Luke simplifies it, he's saying, look, the 20 through 26 verses are talking about people. 27 through 38 is the reflection in a mirror. And, and not only do we have reflections in mirrors, now we have TikTok and Instagram and phones to capture our reflections and our actions and our words. And, and to be, I mean, it's like, if you think about it in kind of an interesting way, I mean, there's always the like, oh, the conspiracy, they're listening to you. It's like, now they don't even have to try. We're sending them sound bites and pictures and information like, check me out. Here's all of it categorized and I'm checking in everywhere I go. They know exactly where to find me if they ever need to get a hold of me for anything. But it's about ourselves and then about God. And he emphasizes the true happiness and the reality that, that Jesus will transform our hearts and our minds as he gets a hold of our lives. And so the question, though, is if this is true, and Jesus said, I'm going to bless you to bless others, and I'm going to save you, what keeps us from being that blessing? And that, that's where, for me, I was like, man, this is a tough sermon. And I, I was tempted a couple times to call Matt and be like, hey, you're preaching week two. I don't know. I don't have a lot to say. I, I'm lost. Because Jesus said these words, and then he did it. And the more I look at that, I'm like, wow, there's more weight on a pastor in the pulpit. Because if I say that we're supposed to love others, and not everyone can see me every day, but in the community like we're in, you know what we're doing. And you know what other people are doing. And we should. We should be known by our love. And so how can I preach this message? And I was like, well, anger, you know, I'm a recovered selfishness person where I'm, I'm pretty good at that. But Sometimes every once in a while on a road trip, it's like, hey, we're in and out in Chick-fil-A. If those two options aren't happening, then we're not eating. That's just what, how it is. You know, I'm not selfish or anything. I mean, shoot, I am. Okay, kids, what do you want? Or wife, what do you want? Sorry. But it's easy when it's anger and I blow up or it's pride. But what about the root of bitterness? And I got hung up on that a little bit going, man, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees were bitter and they had this anger they were coming at Jesus and and Jesus gets into here with loving your enemies. And he says, I say to you who, who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. The root of bitterness, it, get, it gets in. And, and I, I've removed a lot, but I didn't realize I had some more roots in my heart that were keeping me from being a blessing. And this week, I couldn't, pre I couldn't prepare because the Holy Spirit was like, no, you're not ready. I got to work on you. I got to make you better. I got to work on your character because there's still this root of bitterness that's keeping you from being the husband and the father and the pastor that, that you're supposed to be. And you're not, you're not blessing. You're not speaking well of. And my wife is so good at, at being in tune to, hey, how are you? Why'd you say that? There's some, is there something there? Oh, you're right. But usually I deny it for a while, and it's like, okay, Holy Spirit, you're using her to, to reveal truth of, of what God's doing in my character. 
And for a lot of you, in a lot of different scenarios, maybe it's your boss or a coworker, but what about your subordinate? Are, are you the same person in every meeting? Are you the same person at home than you are in the office? Where do your kids get the leftovers and are you just blowing up? And Jesus says, look, love your enemy. Love your enemy. If someone takes your tunic, give them the second. To modernize it, if someone steals your car, don't go to the police and give them the footage. Send them the pink slip. You can find on Google their address. Just send it to them and be like, hey, I have a second car if you want it. The keys are in the ignition. Like, it's just, Jesus told me to do that. Like, that's mind-blowing for Jesus to be like, hey, don't, I know you have low jack and tracking on your car. You left your phone in it. You can find my iPhone and you got the, you have all the evidence, but just send them the pink slip. Hey, if they take one thing, give them, give them everything. Just don't ask for it in return. And he goes on and he's like, look, this blessing is an amazing thing because 30, he says, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And then verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners love those who love them. And verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. What he's saying there is, look, there's a sin problem. It's an archery term to miss the mark. We've all missed the mark. And when Jesus removes the sin from our lives, now we're living for him. I was talking about earlier, the the spirit that's in us controls us and eventually will flow out of us if we're saved. If we're not, then then we can kind of hold it together somewhat, but eventually what's in us is going to come out of us and it's not going to look good, sound good, or feel good, and everyone better look out because your wrath is coming. And it might be some worse than others, but it's nothing compared to God's wrath. So as believers, we can rest and, hey, you stole my car. Here's the pink. Watch out. You got God's wrath coming at you. I'm out. Like, I love you. Come to know Jesus because otherwise God's wrath's coming on you and I'm out of the, I'm out of the way. It's going to be bad. But here he's saying, look, why would you just invite people over to your house from church or from work that are going to invite you over to their house? The sinners do that. When you lend money and they get it back, that's how the sinners do. You're saved. Go invite the homeless person that can't repay you. Go take them out to lunch. Go take them to, the, to your house. Take the people that are in such dire need and help them because they can't repay you. That's what this love and forgiveness looks like, which is mind-blowing. The first time I heard that and realized that's what he was teaching. The disciples were like, wait, what? So I can't just invite Peter over for, for dinner and then he'll invite me over and we'll just kind of, no. True sacrifice and love is giving to those in need who can't repay you. And so it says in verse 34, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. In verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. He sets the bar so high. It's amazing. And I love it because if you've ever had an opportunity to bless somebody and truly speak well and give them something they can't repay you, they're floored. And they're like, dude, who are you and what are you and what planet did you come from? You're like, I know, it's great. Jesus gave me everything here. Here you go. Homeless guy, here's some shoes. I know you're never going to be able to give me shoes back. Here you go. Hey, homeless guy, here's a full meal, like 20, but I know you're not going to be able to repay me. Here you go. I don't expect anything in return. 
And that pulls at our heart a little bit, especially if you're not following Christ. You're like, wait, why would you do that? That's a horrible ROI. You're not, you can't return on your investment. You're just giving things away. Well, our kingdom's not of this world. It's, it's in heaven. That's where our inheritance is, and we're sons of the Most High, so we live differently. We're above all the darkness and, and depravity and all the horrible things that are happening. And so Jesus is saying, look, your future's in heaven. It brings you joy, verse 20 through 23. But if your future's in hell, it brings us sorrow as believers because that's all you're living for it is, is the next pay raise, is the next vacation, and all that's fleeting. And your life is like a mist. It's going to be gone. So what are you really living for? And how do you bless those who hurt you? Because no one's doing that. The church isn't doing it. The church has lost its saltiness and its love. The church looks exactly like the world. And so, especially growing up and in the workplace, people are like, why would I go to church? I look exactly like you. Except for when they didn't. And then they took notice. And they realized, hey, you don't talk like us. You don't act like all the Christians I know that just go to church whenever it's convenient. You don't do that. You actually serve and you actually help the poor. Like, yeah, because Jesus told me to do that. Like, that's actually what... Christians should do. I'm filling out paperwork to be a foster parent, and it's like, how is your religious affiliation, like, what are the demands of your religious affiliation? And I'm like, I care for the orphans and widows, so actually I should have been doing this a long time ago. Like, I, I was amazed by that because I thought, what is other people's response that they feel they have to do? And, and, and the obligations, it's like, Jesus said, the hardest thing is to just love and forgive your enemy. But he's actually going to change you inside of you to do that. And so you're going to love and pray for your enemies. You're going to invite the homeless, the stranger, the enemy over to your house knowing they can't repay you. And you're going to, when someone strikes you on the cheek, you're going to give them the other one and say, here, make it good. And you're going to mean it. You're not going to do it sarcastically. You're going to lovingly say, hey, I don't know what's going on. Obviously, it's a spiritual battle. And our battle's not against flesh and blood here, but something's happening and there's a huge transformation that's going to take place. And I'm going to do good and expect nothing in return. And then we see he talks about judgment, which is important because when, you, when, you, when you're driving down the road and you're not judging cars, you're going to get in an accident. I mean, it's just a fact, right? Like I'm always judging cars, seeing how fast they're moving. And if there's a car swerving, then I'm going to make a judgment. I'm not judging them, being judgmental towards them, unless they maybe have had too much to drink, then I might, you know, if it's pretty evident, I might call the authorities in and say, hey, based on my judgment, you got to check this guy out. And thankfully, that's come to true a couple of times and saved some people. But here's the thing is, when we say, oh, you can't judge and you don't want to be judged, Jesus is saying in verse 38, he says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. So I hope if I was drunk on the road, someone would call the cops on me and save, save me and someone else, right? Like, so the measurement, he's saying, you have to have wisdom. Don't just run around judging people thinking they're supposed to be a mature believer when they just accepted Christ an hour ago. Look at someone, evaluate them with the measurement that you're gonna be evaluated and go, yeah, by all accounts, they, they are taking the Lord's name in vain. I should have a conversation with them kindly, warmly, discipling them, loving them, seeing maybe an error. They are an infant. They didn't know. Now you're there to help them grow. And so what is in you, controlling you, will ultimately come out of you. And he's saying, look, and he gives them a parable, a blind man leading a blind man. It's not going to go well. But when one blind man can see, he helps the other one 
And he says in verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. To be like Jesus, he's saying, will be the goal. We won't be Jesus, but we'll be like Jesus. And he said this, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? So here's some specks uh, that were in my eye over the years I've collected uh, for a sermon illustration. Just kidding. No, these are specks of dust that in my wisdom, I finally bought some safety glasses, but some of the old guys like, now I know why we don't wear those because they go under the glasses and still get in your eye. And you're like, ah, now I have these glasses to mess with. And, and at times I've like tried to get people to check the speck in my eye. I'm like, hey, help me out. I can't see it. And I love this visual because if, someone, if you had a speck of dust, which I'm sure you can see that because it's large. No, it's tiny. None of you can probably see that. Maybe if you're up close a little bit. But the idea of just having a log in your eye and trying to help someone else out with a speck is pretty obvious you're not going to be able to get very close, number one, right? So there's no real intimacy or care. It's huge judgment put on somebody. Secondly, it's like, dude, you have your own issues to deal with first, all right? Let's let Jesus change your life, control your life, and then out of the overflow, you'd be able to lovingly help me. And so it's saying, basically, take the log out of your own eye. And as you, as you go, hey, I'm a recovering, selfish person too. Here's how Jesus helped me, and I, I see this in your life. That's a lot different than, hey, dude, you're a selfish jerk. Figure it out. Stop doing that. And so he's saying, look, the blind can't lead the blind. A disciple can't be above the teacher. When, he, when he's trained, he'll be like the teacher. And here's the love and care and the expectation is let Jesus remove the log and save you from your sin first, and then you can go help and disciple and invest and, and really pour into someone else's life and speak life into them. And he says, you hypocrite, in verse 42, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye. And then the, the, the second to last illustration he gives is a, a tree, a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. The, the craziest thing is what's in you controls you. And, and how often do we think about that? Okay, today I need your spirit to control me. Because the alternative is you living like you were unsaved and having yourself control you. Hudson Taylor was a missionary in China, and he was, was waiting for a boat, he called. And as he was waiting for it, this rich businessman came, and, and, and as the boat comes near, the rich business guy throws the missionary down into the dirt and gets his whole entourage and stuff into the boat. And the boat driver knows Hudson as this missionary in China, and so he, he calls the rich Chinese businessman out, and he's like, what are you doing? Get out of my boat. He called the boat. It's his boat. Get out of here, you jerk. And so Hudson, controlled by the Holy Spirit that's in him, it flows out of him, and Hudson says, hey, it's my boat. I called it, but why don't you join me on the ride? You're obviously in a hurry. Let's get in the boat and take it together. And on the way, he was able to disciple and share the gospel with that rich businessman because there was a difference there. Hudson wasn't looking out for his own kingdom himself. He was looking out for Jesus, Jesus' kingdom, and seeing that God wanted this rich Chinese business guy to hear the gospel, and he wasn't hearing it from a pastor in a pulpit in a church. He was going to hear it from a missionary on a boat on the river. So going, sharing, Jesus transforms his life, controls his life through a spirit that overflows out of his life and is impacted. And that's what we're doing in our homes. That's what we should be doing in our communities. And that's the example here is Jesus saying, look, out of uh, a good tree is going to grow good fruit. You don't get figs from a, from a weed 
growing in your, in your grass you're trying to pull out. And he says in verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. I walked by a guy the other day, and he was just cussing, and he saw me, and he's like, oh, sorry, that's, that's not really who I am. I'm like, no, I know who it is. It's in you. It's in your heart. And out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. Just, just be honest. Don't lie about it. You're making it worse. We know that our condition is sinful, but we either try and hide it, lie about it, or get angry and prideful because we think we can figure it out someday. And rather than surrender to Jesus and say, you made me, you know me, and you came to save me for the point of blessing me, putting your spirit to control me. So out of the overflow of the spirit in me, controlling me, will my mouth speak good words and produce good fruit for others to see and glorify God. And that's the goal. Jesus is saying, look, I'm building a new kingdom and the world's going to be against me first and then you. So be ready. And by the way, rejoice in that day that they know there's a difference. Because more and more today, as the world falls apart and encaves on itself, the only one standing in it with a smile on our face of the church. Because we know he's coming back for us, and we know we have hope even when we're hungry. Even when we're arrested or oppressed, there's hope. And, and the reality is, are we going to do what Jesus said? Are we going to do what Jesus said? And if you, if you missed it, I'm just going to summarize it as die to yourself. He's saying you have to die to yourself if you want to live. If you want to bless other people, you have to die to yourself and let me raise you. And, and that's where this, this other you know, missionary pastor said this succinctly, I, I died to myself. I have a death date. And I died to the desires of this world. And I died to the laws of men. Those three things. When you die to yourself... You're no longer selfish, you're selfless. When you die to the cares of this world, you're no longer concerned about food or clothing. When you die to the praises of men, you're no longer able to be bought and manipulated. You're able to serve and care for them. And when your car gets stolen, the pink slips in the mail. No big deal. You're dead. There's a, there's, there's a death date. Like, what do you have? To, you don't have no claim. You're living for Christ. Christ is living through you and in you. And it's this reality that he says in the end, verse 46 through 49, which is a fun little kid's you know, visual aid of build your house on the rock, it'll stand. You build your house on the, on, the, on the sand, it'll be destroyed. If you build your house on the rock, it'll stand. And, but he says this in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Why are you calling on me, Lord, and not doing what I tell you? There's a legislature that, that tried to put forth a law to kill kids 28 days old. Kill them. Make it legal. Abortion has continued to be a debated topic. We live in a country where we can actually talk for, for a few days longer, maybe. We have free speech, but we can actually debate and make laws. And it's amazing how the church has stayed silent in prayer. And, and we have to step up and pray and see the importance of it. That's why I started with Jesus didn't just go out and go, hey, those 12 guys look good. He prayed all night, and he prayed continually all through his ministry because he was vexed, and he was gripped, and he's like, what's next? What am I supposed to do? As a church, we have to be in prayer, and we know that there's 40 days of life that's been going on. We're kind of in the middle of it, and there's already been three peoples whose souls have turned to Jesus who had their heart intent to go kill their baby at the clinic and slow, and because people were praying, God intervened. 
And so I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to be down there this Thursday. Dennis will be out in the courtyard for questions and kind of connecting if you want more info on how to pray against abortion. But the days are getting darker and God's light is going to be shining brighter that we'd be known by our love. And it starts with prayer. And it starts with, with preparing our minds and hearts saying, okay, I'm gonna, I want my, my life to be built on the rock of Christ. I want to live my life for God's glory and for his purpose, and, and I want to help. And maybe you're like, yeah, that's, I'm going to pray, but man, what about kids' ministry? Or what about youth ministry? Or there's some other ministry? Or man, I just heard about Jesus, and I'm a sinner, and I haven't trusted in him as my Savior. I need that. And I want to invite you into that. There's a purpose. It's, it's not just God saves us. It's God saves us and blesses us to bless others. And as believers, the reason we're not blessing others, maybe it's we're bitter. Maybe... The, the easier, low-hanging fruit you've been avoiding. Maybe it's your anger. Maybe it's you're selfish, and you're like, I'm not going to give up a day to pray. I'm not going to give up an hour. I get it. That's a, that's a lot of time. Maybe it's, there's other things that you're saying yes to, and it's the pride of life, and, it, and it's the lust of the flesh, and, and to be comfortable and easy, and there's always one more thing to do, and maybe the Holy Spirit's trying to get a hold of your heart and say, no, let me be in you. Let me be controlling you and let me flow through you so others can see God in you. As we, as we spend some time now thinking, Jesus wasn't saying go and do and get. He was saying go and be. Be still and let my spirit control you and then you would go and do these things. When someone's against you, reviling you, you would rejoice and be able to share the hope you have with Christ. There's a little video I wanted to share about the 40 days for life and just the impact and the the purpose of praying, not only for moms coming in and for their babies, but everyone involved, the the workers in the clinic, the doctors that are blinded and thinking this is a good thing when it's so evil. We need to be praying for everyone involved that the the gospel would grab a hold of their hearts. So I wanted wanted you to see this clip and then we'll, we'll wrap up help end abortion where you live by participating in the March 2nd to April 10th 40 Days for Life vigil. I had always considered myself pro-life, but it was once I got involved with 40 Days for Life that really caused me to make it my own, to challenge myself to learn more about what abortion was, what the community resources were in our area, and how to truly help women choose life and help families in our community. This is the most amazing peaceful, loving way to truly help women and to save babies. I feel like it's the greatest opportunity for God to use us as his vessels and to be a presence on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, to touch the hearts and minds of not only the women, um, not only to save the babies, but to be there as a presence for the people within the clinic as well, as well as the sidewalk escorts anybody that has anything to do with abortion to be able to be a light in their lives and try and plant a seed for them. So as the Holy Spirit's moving, as we read from God's Word, I want to challenge you because Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and don't go do what I've told you to do? The Holy Spirit's in you, moving you, trying to flow through you. Let's let it. I was, I was challenged this week. I heard uh, all the things that are going on in the world, all the wars. And the church 
is on the run, but they're staying strong. And, and this missionary shared with another pastor, hey, my, my son's actually going behind enemy lines, sneaking food to the Christians that are, that are hiding. And if they find him in the jungle, they're going to kill him. And I know my son's going to be caught one of these days, but I'm so proud. Are we discipling our kids? Are we discipling our friends? When, when it comes here, are we going to say that? Or are we going to just, just bow and say, you know, I want food, I want clothes, I want comfort? Or are we going to say, man, they're persecuting me. This is the day I get to rejoice. That I'm proclaiming Jesus, that I'm praying against abortion, that my son and daughter, they are equipped with God's love and his spirits in them too, flowing through them and flowing out of them. And it doesn't matter if they die, because I'll see him in heaven soon. Is our perspective truly fixed on Jesus? And as he put his spirit 100% in our lives, controlling us and flowing through us to others. I want you to let the Holy Spirit reveal in your life an area where you need to surrender, where he needs to have control. And as we pray for the persecuted church and pray for, for those lives that are in danger and, and slow and around the world through abortion and those doctors and everyone involved, that God would, would do what he does and save and bring hope to the hopeless. And then I'll come back up and lead us through communion for the believers.